as I readjust my podium, me and this podium are trying to learn how to work synergetically together. <laughs> I feel victorious this morning, and I feel elated this morning, because as Lily said in her prayer, this morning, I, it's not uncommon for us teachers to feel like attacked uh, when we're trying to uh, create our talks and when, we, when we're about to give them. It's just not uncommon at all. And so I just, <laughs> I just feel victorious. I'm like, Satan, you just try to bring it on because I have got the power of the Holy Spirit with me. Amen? Amen. <laughs> so I wanted to start my talk uh, telling you about a little story that, had, that happened last spring. So I chaperoned this field trip uh, of my daughter's fourth grade class. We went to, as a lot of fourth graders around the state do, we went to the Capitol. And we took a tour of the Capitol. And after we brought everyone back to the school and we were on the way home, I asked my daughter what she thought of the field trip. And she said, that was the most boring field trip I have ever been on in my entire life. Why did we have to walk hours around that building? And then we had to listen to this lady just talk and talk and talk. And why couldn't we have a snack while we were in there? <laughs> Alas, all was not bad. She did have some positive reviews to say. She loved the ride up and the ride back. Because <laughs> she got to hang out with her friends in the back of my car and wasn't in school. So my husband knew that we were uh, on this field trip, and, and he called me, or we talked on the phone later that day, and he asked me how the field trip went, and I proceeded to give him her honest feedback. And uh, he, he was kind of amused by this, so he wanted to hear it just from her. So he comes home, and he asks her about the field trip, and she proceeds to regale him with her assessment of the field trip. And so he's thinking this is just, you know, hilarious. And, uh, and because he already knows what her assessment is, because he, he asks her just the right questions to elicit from her, her, her feedback. And so the, it, it's interesting because, you know, of course he never says, um, you don't have to tell me that mom already told me that. Or he doesn't say, I already know. Don't worry. You don't have to say that. I already know. Right? Why? He delights so much in hearing her honest, unfiltered assessment of this field trip. He absolutely delights in it. Why? Because he loves her. He adores her. And so that's the story that came to my mind when I started really looking at Jesus' prayer uh, over in John 17. The thing that struck me about Jesus' prayer at first was the fact that he tells the Father all this stuff that the Father already knows. Listen to this. There's like five examples just in the first six verses. In verse 1, he says, The hour has come. 
God already knows, right? In verse 2, when he petitions, glorify your son that the son may glorify you, he adds, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And then in verse 3, then he defines eternal life as if God doesn't know what that is, right? (laughs) And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then he gives a report. He says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And in verse 6, he's speaking of the people that the Father gave to Jesus out of the world. And he says, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So do you see what you get the picture? The way that my prayer life has evolved is that when I first became a believer, um, I just prattled on and on and on to God. I just would talk to him about everything. Everything that came out of my mouth, there was like literally no filter. What I was thinking is what I was saying. For example, this is, this is seriously a prayer that I have prayed. God, how could I have been so stupid? I knew what the speed limit was on that road. I just wasn't paying attention. I wasn't even in a hurry, Lord. I just wasn't paying attention to how fast I was going, and there was no traffic to, like, gauge my speed with. Ah, and I'm dreading telling John he's not going to be happy about this because our insurance is going to go up. Can anyone else relate to this, by the way? Oh, I saw one hand. Okay, I'm totally alone. But then is when I get to the point, the real prayer, right? It says, Lord... Let me have the courage to tell John and to tell him soon, to not procrastinate, to tell him, and Lord, prepare his heart. (laughs) I had my husband read this, by the way. (laughs) Um, Lord, prepare his heart to hear me compassionately and be understanding. (laughs) Ironically, as my walk with Jesus has matured, And as I have come to appreciate his omniscience, the fact that he is all-knowing, that he knows everything, the the less I said to him. Because I'm thinking to myself, I don't have to rehash that situation. God already knows. So here I am studying this prayer of Jesus, and he is God, and he is of God. He's the pathway to God. And if anyone doesn't need to tell the Father what he already knows, it's the Son, right? They're interconnected. And as Jesus said to the Father from verse 11 in our passage, he said, we are one. So why? Why does Jesus, in talking to the Father, Tell the Father stuff he already knows. It's about their intimate relationship. It's about love. It's about perfect love. And don't think that Jesus didn't want his disciples who were listening on to grasp this. Let's, I want to explore this relationship between the Father and the Son a little bit more. Let's take it, let, we're going to take a look at some of the things that are in our passage, that are in Scripture, that 
tells about their relationship. First of all, the father and the son, they're distinct from each other. They are one, but they are distinct. Listen to Paul's description of Christ uh, in, his, in the Philippians, in his, in his letter to the Philippians, in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, he says, Though Jesus was God, Jesus did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took on the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. He died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of the highest honor and gave him the name above all names that at every na- at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. R.C. Sproul in his book John uh, kind of framed it up like this and I just love the way he said it. He said, Jesus put aside the eternal glory that he had with the Father and made himself of no reputation by taking on the form of a man and become, becoming a slave obedient even unto death. There was no emptying of any divine attributes, but an emptying of prerogatives, an emptying of status, of exaltation, of glory, for the sake of redemption and for the sake of the ultimate glory of the Father. For these purposes, our Lord put aside his own glory for a season. They were distinct from each other for the purpose of redemption and for the glory of the Father. The second aspect of their relationship that is clearly pointed out in our passage is that the Father has authority over Jesus. In verse 2, Jesus says that the Father gave him authority over all flesh. If Jesus was given the authority... Where did the authority originate from? In verse 3, Jesus says that the Father sent him. If Jesus was sent, who did the sending? In verse 4, Jesus references the work that the Father gave him to do. Who gives that work? The one in authority assigns the work. In verse 8, Jesus says, I have given them the words you gave to me. So Jesus wasn't even speaking on his own authority. His words originated with the Father. In fact, back in chapter 14, just moments before his prayer, he said, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father that dwells in me does his works. Third, the third thing I want to say about their relationship is that Jesus is the perfect reflection of the Father. In John 17, 1, he says, Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And I want you to think about this for a second. Because if I ask God to glorify me, (laughs) it is completely the opposite of me asking to glorify God, right? But when Jesus says, if, if Jesus is glorified, then the Father is glorified. It's one and the same. If Jesus is glorified, the Father is glorified. If I'm glorified, the Father is not. Right? It's unique. It's unique to their relationship. And lastly, Jesus is completely dependent and interdependent on the Father. In verse 7, Jesus says, Everything that you, meaning the Father, have given me is from you. 
So the Father is the source of all that Jesus is. So this relationship between the Father and the Son is it's kind of hard to get our brain around, isn't it? It's nothing that we nothing that we have here in our earthly beings. They are distinct, but they're one. They are both God, yet the Father has the authority. It's a level of intimacy that that we just can't grasp, really. But, and here's the cool part, it's a level of intimacy that makes the things that Jesus prays for the believers just astonishing. And And it shows that as much as the Father it loves the son and the son loves the father the father loves us just as much because we mean so much to the son our son paul speaking of sons <laughs> he's a sophomore in high school and when he was a freshman we really really wanted him to uh explore Uh, just join a bunch of different groups, do a bunch of different things, because we wanted him to find his niche. And so um, because our oldest son uh, benefited tremendously from football, he grew spiritually, his character grew. They go to a Christian school, and the coaches are Christian, so it was kind of like its own youth group. And because Jack had benefited so much from that, we strongly encouraged Paul to give it a try. And so he did. Um, and then the, the other thing that I really, really wanted Paul to do was join choir because Paul has a natural stage presence. He has a good singing voice. I knew that he didn't know that. And so I really wanted him to do choir. So here's how it went from the beginning of football. He worked really hard. He was committed to it. He, um, He stuck with it, but in the end, I I think he was doing it more to please us, please his older brother, too. Um, And so when it was over, when football season was over, it was over (laughs) forever. But in the midst of football season, he had his first choir concert, and... um, (laughs) (laughs) And um, when I saw him singing, the first, this, keep in mind, I am not a singer. I've never been in choir. None of my other kids have done anything that's like performance-related, singing, any of that kind of stuff. We're just, we're just not that kind of family. We prefer football games. So, um, so I go to my first choir concert. Never been to a choir concert in my life. Go there. I have no idea what to expect. And I'm sitting there. And he's looking so happy and engaged. Look at this. My favorite part's coming up. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> just guess what I did. I'm, I'm getting the goosebumps. I just cried. I just cried because I was seeing this joy and this engagement and this passion just emanate from him. I thought that I would miss high school football because I had had so much joy in going to see my older son play high school football. But I realized I didn't like high school football just because I like high school football. I realized that I loved going to the games and I loved it because he was good at it. He was passionate about it. He got joy out of it. And now with Paul, I don't miss football at all. And, but I do not miss a choir concert or any performance of his because it brings me so much joy because it brings him so much joy. Right? Yeah, I'm a little verklempt. Makes me want to cry. And so it is with the father and the son. A couple of Sundays ago, our pastor here at Hillside showed us how believers coming to the Lord bring so much joy to Jesus. And because we bring so much joy to the Son, the Father loves us just as much as he loves the Son. Isn't it astonishing just knowing that interconnectedness that they have and how much we are a part of that? That is called perfect love. So how do believers in Jesus fit into this relationship between the Father and the Son? One thing to realize about this prayer is that Jesus is praying it out loud amongst his disciples. Think about the setting here. It's the Last Supper. There, Jesus just gave them this amazing discourse, his longest sermon recorded. It goes all the way from chapter 13 all the way to chapter 16. At the end of chapter 16, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And then he, and then he turns his eyes upward and looks to heaven and he prays. So I wonder, I always wondered if this was kind of confusing to them because he says, I've overcome the world you know, because he hasn't died and rose again, right? So, it, but he loves them, and he, want, he so wants them to have peace. And the reason why they should and we should have peace is reflected in this prayer that he now goes into, which brings into focus his perfect and flawless love for us. In John 17, 2, Jesus, talking to the Father, refers to the disciples as those that the Father has given him. Believers in Jesus were given to him by the Father. In verse 6, Jesus phrases it like this, The people whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me. We are a gift to Jesus. And he goes on to say, All mine are yours, and yours are mine. Mine, yours, 
words reflecting belonging, right? How does it feel to know that you can belong to the Father and the Son? And if you already know that you belong. Do you guys remember the show Cheers? <laughs> Daniela's random. How my, you can see how my brain works, right? The reason that show was so successful was because um, they were like family, right? That, that group of people that hung out in Cheers were like family. And they kind of had this like really honest, unfiltered relationship with each other. And, you know, Cheers was this place where they could just kind of come and let it all hang out because they were comfortable there. They belong in Cheers. And do you remember the theme song? <laughs> Everything, sing along. Making a break from all your worries. knows your name and they're always glad you came you want to be where you can see your troubles are all the same you want to be where everybody knows your name <laughs> That's fun, wasn't it? Belonging somewhere brings us a lot of comfort and happiness, doesn't it? But how much more extremely extravagant is it to say, to be able to say, I belong to the Father and to the Son? Jesus even goes as far as to say, I am praying for those that you have given me. And he even says who he's not praying for. He says, I am not praying for the world, but just for those you gave me. Those that now belong to me. <sighs> it just gives me the goosebumps. I'm getting the goosebumps left and right this morning. So ask yourself, do you belong to Jesus? If not, here's the good news. The Father wants everyone to come to him. Remember the joy that we saw in the, par the parable of the prodigal son. And even our pastor referred to this a couple of Sundays ago in his sermon. The Father was waiting for the son. And as soon as he saw him, and you just kind of picture that horizon, and the sun comes over, and he runs out to him joyfully, and then he celebrates. And so it is with anyone who lays their sins at Jesus' feet and says, I want to belong to you. Further encouragement comes from patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
the Lord is patient with us. He's just waiting. So Jesus is about to leave them, heading to the cross. And so now he is turning the believers back over into the Father's protection because he will no longer be in the world. From verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. What love and care Jesus has for his disciples that he wants not only to give them peace, not only to give them belonging, but to ensure that they are safely back into the Father's hands when he departs. It feels very protective, doesn't it? Even as a believer, I have thought of myself as like down here and God and Jesus are up here. But I really don't think that anymore. The more I read this prayer, the, the more I felt a part of them. And, and it's the way Jesus includes us with him in the Father. He's, Jesus prays that we be in the Father and the Son. He prays for himself to be in us. He prays that the same love that the Father has for him will be in us. What does it mean to be in God or God to be in us? or his love to be in us. I think he partly answered this question in the discourse that he gave moments before he went into this prayer. In John 15, 1 through 5, Jesus gives the analogy of a, of a grapevine as, a, as an analogy to the relationship between him and the Father and us. He said, I am the true vine, and my vi- Father is the vine grower, He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Abiding. It implies being close and remaining close. And we can abide because as the passage says, we are cleansed. Cleansed by Jesus' word. Jesus said that believers are the branches. What is the fruit? The fruit that he's speaking of here, I believe, is love because he goes on in the following passages to talk about the love he goes on to link god's abiding abiding to god's love to his command to love one another so by abiding in christ we are in him in him we have peace in him we have the love of the father and all of this made me think about the imperfectness of my love. 
especially as it is manifested in the use of, usage of air conditioning in our home. <laughs> My husband has worked in the power industry for 32 years. He's also an engineer. In managing our use of air conditioning, <laughs> he has it down to a science. For example, and I actually have to read my notes on this. I had him read it and make sure that I said it right. John will say something like, the peak period is between 3 o'clock and 7 o'clock, and we pay 50 cents per kilowatt hour for the AC during that period, so try not to use the air conditioning in that period. And, and during the summer, he's constantly reminding me how much per kilowatt hour we're paying at any moment during the day and when the peak times are and when the peak times aren't. And he never forgets to remind me to keep all the windows closed and close them before 8 a.m. Or, the cool, or we'll lose the coolness in the house. Or he, he, he reminds me, even though this door stays closed and bolted all the time, he reminds me that the door that goes out from our laundry room, he says, make sure that that uh, laundry room door is bolted because if it's not bolted, sometimes it floats open. <laughs> and if it floats open, all the coolness will be sucked out of the house. Or is it that the heat will come into the house? I'm never really sure because if it hadn't been for my husband, I would have failed, and I'm not kidding, failed thermodynamics. <laughs> anyway, he tells me these things over and over again. And I'm not proud to say that when he's not looking, I just like roll my eyes. <laughs> when he read this, he said, you roll your eyes when I'm talking about this stuff? <laughs> I was like, you didn't know that? <laughs> But all I can think of is, what would it look like if he was telling God this stuff over and over? I think that God would embrace him lovingly. I do. And I think that God would appreciate so much that he's trying to be a good financial steward of the financial blessings that he's given us. I think that he would see my husband's heart for the environment, his creation. And I think he would also see that my husband is very community-minded. He doesn't want to tax the grid when the grid is most taxed. And then what I thought was, is it possible, even possible, for me to love my husband the way God loves him? Not perfectly. Not perfectly. But I have some hope. And this is the hope that I have. Because I have a relationship with Jesus. Because I have the Holy Spirit in me. I can see the distinction. Right? I can see the distinction between God's perfect love and my imperfect love. And I can ask God to help, to help me love him the way he loves him. And I know that just by asking that he, will, that he will love him through me the more I ask. Right? 
We humans, we run out. We run out of patience, we run out of time, we run out of energy. Right? But God never runs out of anything. And that's why he is the love power source for us. A power source that doesn't get taxed. A power source that has infinite kilowatt hours. Right? And in that, we can bask in that. We can bask in his protection. We can bask in his peace. And that is why we can rattle on and on and on to God forever about everything. Because he simply delights in it. Amen? Amen. All right. God, our Heavenly Father, I just, oh, I just thank you so much for your word. It just, it just the power of your love and what you give us through your word is just transforming, Lord, and I thank you for that. And I pray that as we go off into our small groups, Lord, that we will know you better, that we will see you in this. And I pray for any of us affected by this smoke inhalation stuff. Pray that your healing power on that. And I ask you to protect those who are, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Like uh, pulmonarily, he knows what I mean, pulmonarily challenged. So Lord, help us just be honest and unfiltered with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.